We're coming to the end of our story tonight, and we would love to know what you would like to hear next. Head to our website, sleepybookshelf.com, and submit your vote. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's lovely to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be reading the last pages of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Have you enjoyed this murder mystery? Reach out to me on social media or via our website. I would love to know what you think. Before we open our book, as usual, let's take some time to relax and unwind. Give the muscles in your body a big squeeze and then gently relax them, letting them sink heavily into your bed. Next, inhale deeply and try to make your exhale slightly longer. If you want to use a count, I tend to inhale for four and out for eight. It's amazing how quickly this breath helps to relax your mind. Now in our last episode, Holmes had just arrived unannounced with Watson at Baskerville Hall. He was seemingly very interested in the portraits hanging in the dining room, taking particular interest in Hugo Baskerville's likeness the man who began the family legend. Once Sir Henry had gone to bed, Holmes showed Watson how the portrait looked remarkably like the face of Stapleton, making the link that perhaps Stapleton had claims to the Baskerville inheritance, therefore securing his motive. The next morning, Holmes directed Sir Henry to dine as planned at the Stapletons that evening, but to go alone and walk back home over the moor rather than taking his carriage. He and Watson visited Mrs. Laura Lyons, told her about Stapleton's real marital status and confirmed with her that he had instructed her to send her letter to Sir Charles, but to forego meeting him the night he died. Next, they went to the train station and waited for a detective named Lestrade, whom Holmes had requested meet them there on the express from London. That night, the three men hid outside Stapleton's house, and waited for Sir Henry to leave. As Sir Henry made his appearance, so did the elusive hound, more terrible and giant than any of them could have imagined. Holmes shot the beast dead, just as it had reached the baronet. And so, we pick back up tonight with Sir Henry shakily continuing on to Baskerville Hall, and the three men, Holmes, Watson, and Lestrade, 
pursuing Stapleton on the moor. So lie back and relax as I turn to the final pages of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Chapter 14 continued. The front door was open, so we rushed in and hurried from room to room, to the amazement of a doddering old manservant who met us in the passage. There was no light, save in the dining room, but Holmes caught up the lamp and left no corner of the house unexplored. No sign could we see of the man whom we were chasing. On the upper floor, however, one of the bedroom doors was locked. There's someone in here, said Lestrade. I can hear movement. Open this door. A faint moaning and rustling came from within. Holmes struck the door just over the lock with the flat of his foot, and it flew open. Pistol in hand, we all three rushed into the room. There was no sign within it of that desperate and defiant villain whom we had expected to see. Instead, we were faced by an object so strange and so unexpected that we stood for a moment, staring at it in amazement. The room had been fashioned into a small museum. The walls were lined by a number of glass-topped cases, full of that collection of butterflies and moths, the formation of which had been the relaxation of this complex and dangerous man. In the center of this room, there was an upright beam which had been placed at some period as a support for the old worm-eaten bulk of timber which spanned the roof. To this post, a figure was tied, so swathed and muffled in the sheets which had been used to secure it that one could not for the moment tell whether it was that of a man or a woman. One towel passed round the throat and was secured at the back of the pillar. Another covered the lower part of the face and over it two dark eyes, eyes full of grief and shame and dreadful questioning, stared back at us. In a minute, we had torn off the gag, unswathed the bonds, and Mrs. Stapleton sank upon the floor in front of us. As her beautiful head fell upon her chest, I saw the clear, red wheel across her neck. The brute, said Holmes. Here, Lestrade, your brandy bottle. Put her in the chair. She has fainted from exhaustion. She opened her eyes again. Is he safe? She asked. Has he escaped? 
He cannot escape us, madam, said Holmes. No, no, I did not mean my husband, said she. Sir Henry, is he safe? Holmes nodded. Yes. And the hound? She asked. It is dead, he replied. She gave a long sigh of satisfaction. You bear him no good will, madam, said Holmes. Tell us then where we shall find him. If you have ever aided him in evil, help us now and so atone. There is but one place he can have fled, she answered. There is an old tin mine on an island in the heart of the mire. It was there that he kept his hound, and there also he had made preparations so that he might have a refuge. That is where he should fly. The fog bank lay like white wool against the window. Holmes held the lamp towards it. See, said he, no one could find his way into the Grimpen Mire tonight. She laughed and clapped her hands. Her eyes and teeth gleamed with fierce merriment. He may find his way in, but never out, said she. How can he see the guiding wands tonight? We planted them together, he and I, to mark the pathway through the mire. Oh, if only I could have plucked them out today, then indeed you would have had him at your mercy. It was evident to us that all pursuit was in vain until the fog had lifted. Meanwhile, we left Lestrade in possession of the house, while Holmes and I went back with the baronet to Baskerville Hall. The story of the Stapletons could no longer be withheld from him, but he took the blow bravely when he learned of the truth about the woman whom he had loved. But the shock of the night's adventures had shattered his nerves, and before morning he lay delirious in a high fever under the care of Dr. Mortimer. The two of them were destined to travel together round the world before Sir Henry had become once more the hale, hearty man that he had been before he became master of that ill-omened estate. And now I come rapidly to the conclusion of this singular narrative in which I have tried to make the reader share those dark fears and vague surmises which clouded our lives so long and ended in so tragic a manner. On the morning after the death of the hound, the fog had lifted, and we were guided by Mrs. Stapleton to the point where they had found a pathway through the bog. It helped us to realize the horror of this woman's life when we saw the eagerness and joy with which she led us on her husband's track. We left her standing upon the thin peninsula of firm, peaty soil which tapered out into the widespread bog. 
From the end of it, a small wand planted here and there showed where the path zigzagged from tuft to tuft of rushes among those green-scummed pits and foul quagmires which barred the way to the stranger. Rank reeds and lush, slimy water plants sent an odor of decay and a heavy, miasmatic vapor into our faces. A false step plunged us more than once, thigh-deep into the dark, quivering mire, which shook for yards in soft undulations around our feet. Its tenacious grip plucked at our heels as we walked, and when we sank into it, it was as if some malignant hand was tugging us down into those obscene depths. So grim and purposeful was the clutch in which it held us. Once only we saw a trace that someone had passed that perilous way before us. From amid a tuft of cotton grass which bore it up out of the slime, some dark thing was projecting. Holmes sank to his waist as he stepped from the path to seize it. And had we not been there to drag him out, he could never have set his foot upon firm land again. He held an old black boot into the air. Mayer's Toronto was printed on the leather inside. It is worth a mud bath, said he. It is our friend Sir Henry's missing boot. Thrown there by Stapleton in his flight, said I. Exactly, he replied. He retained it in his hand after using it to set the hound upon the track. He fled when he knew the game was up, still clutching it, and he hurled it away at this point of his flight. We know at least that he came so far in safety. There was no chance of finding footsteps in the mire, for the rising mud oozed swiftly in upon them. But as we last reached firmer ground beyond the morass, we all looked eagerly for them, but no slightest sign of them ever met our eyes. If the earth told a true story, then Stapleton never reached that island of refuge, which he struggled through the fog upon that last night. Somewhere in the heart of the great Grimpen Mire, down in the foul slime of the huge morass which had sucked him in, this cold, cruel-hearted man is forever buried. Many traces we found of him in the bog-girt island where he had hid his ally. A huge driving wheel and a shaft, half filled with rubbish, showed the position of an abandoned mine. Beside it were the crumbling remains of the cottages of the miners, 
driven away, no doubt, by the foul reek of the surrounding swamp. In one of these, a staple and chain with a quantity of gnawed bones showed where the animal had been kept. Well, I do not know that this place contains any secret which we have not already fathomed, said Holmes. He could hide his hound, but he could not hush its voice, and hence came those cries which, even in daylight, were not pleasant to hear. On an emergency, he could keep the hound in the outhouse at Meripit, but it was always a risk, and it was only on the supreme day which he regarded as the end of all his efforts that he dared to do it. This paste in the tin is no doubt the luminous mixture with which the creature was daubed. It was suggested, of course, by the story of the family hellhound and by desire to frighten old Sir Charles to death. No wonder the poor devil of a convict ran and screamed, even as our friend did, as we ourselves might have done when we saw such a creature bounding through the darkness of the moor upon his track. It was a cunning device, for apart from the chance of driving your victim to his death, what peasant would venture to inquire too closely into such a creature should he get sight of it, as many have done, upon the moor? I said it in London, Watson, and I say it again now, but never yet have we helped to hunt down a more dangerous man than he who is lying yonder. He swept his long arm towards the huge mottled expanse of the green splotched bog, which stretched away until it merged into the russet slopes of the moor. Chapter 15 a retrospection. It was the end of November, and Holmes and I sat upon a raw and foggy night on either side of a blazing fire in our sitting room in Baker Street. Since the tragic upshot of our visit to Devonshire, he had been engaged in two affairs of the utmost importance. My friend was in excellent spirits over a success which had attended a succession of difficult and important cases, so that I was able to induce him to discuss the details of the Baskerville mystery. I had waited patiently for the opportunity, for I was aware that he would never permit cases to overlap, and that his clear and logical mind would not be drawn from its present work to dwell upon the memories of the past. Sir Henry and Dr. Mortimer were, however, in London, on their way to that long voyage which had been recommended for the restoration of his shattered nerves. They had called upon us that very afternoon, so that it was natural that the subject should come up for discussion. The whole course of events, said Holmes, from the point of view of the man who called himself Stapleton, 
was simple and direct, although to us, who had no means in the beginning of knowing the motives of his actions and could only learn in part of the facts, it all appeared exceedingly complex. I have had the advantage of two conversations with Mrs. Stapleton, and the case has now been so entirely cleared up that I'm not aware that there is anything which remained a secret to us. You will find a few notes upon the matter under the heading B in my indexed list of cases. Perhaps you would kindly give me a sketch of the course of events from memory, said I. Certainly, though I cannot guarantee that I carry all the facts in my mind, said he. Intense mental concentration has a curious way of blotting out what has passed. The barrister, who has his case at his fingers' ends and is able to argue with an expert upon his own subject, finds that a week or two of the courts will drive it all out of his head once more. So each of my cases displaces the last, and the most recent have blurred my recollection of Baskerville Hall. Tomorrow, some other little problem may be submitted to my notice, which will, in turn, dispossess these. So far as the case of the Hound goes, however, I will give you the course of events as nearly as I can and you will suggest anything which I may have forgotten. My inquiries show, beyond all question, that the family portrait did not lie, and that this fellow was indeed a Baskerville. He was a son of that Roger Baskerville, the younger brother of Sir Charles, who fled with a sinister reputation to South America, where he was said to have died unmarried. He did, as a matter of fact, marry and had one child, this fellow, whose real name is the same as his father's. He married the beautiful Beryl Garcia and, having purloined a considerable sum of money, he changed his name to Vandalore and fled to England, where he established a school in the east of Yorkshire. His reason for attempting this special line of business was that he had struck up an acquaintance with a consumptive tutor upon the voyage home, and that he had used this man's ability to make the undertaking a success. Fraser, the tutor, died, however, and the school, which had begun well, sank from disrepute into infamy. The Vandalores found it convenient to change their name to Stapleton. He bought the remains of his fortune, his schemes for the future, and his taste for entomology to the south of England. I learned at the British Museum that he was a recognized authority upon the subject, and that the name of Vandalore has been permanently attached to a certain moth which he had in his Yorkshire days, been the first to describe. We now come to that portion of his life which has proved to be of such intense interest to us. The fellow had evidently made inquiry and found that only two lives intervened between him 
and a valuable estate. When he went to Devonshire, his plans were, I believe, exceedingly hazy. But that he meant mischief from the first is evident from the way he took his wife with him in the character of his sister. The idea of using her as a decoy was clearly already in his mind, though he may not have been certain how the details of his plot were to be arranged. He meant, in the end, to have an estate, and he was ready to use any tool or run any risk for that end. His first act was to establish himself as near to his ancestral home as he could, and his second was to cultivate a friendship with Sir Charles Baskerville and with the neighbors. The baronet himself told him about the family hound and so prepared the way for his own death. Stapleton, as I will continue to call him, knew that the old man's heart was weak and that the shock would kill him. So much he had learned from Dr. Mortimer. He had heard also that Sir Charles was superstitious and had taken this grim legend very seriously. His ingenious mind instantly suggested a way by which the baronet could be done to death, and yet it would be hardly possible to bring home the guilt to the real murderer. Having conceived the idea, he proceeded to carry it out with considerable finesse. An ordinary schemer would have been content to work with a hound. The use of artificial means to make the creature diabolical was a flash of genius upon his part. The dog he brought in London from Ross and Mangles, the dealers in Fulham Road, was the strongest in their possession. He brought it down by the North Devon line and walked a great distance over the moor so as to get it home without exciting any remarks. He had already, on his insect hunts, learned to penetrate the Grimpen Mire and so had found a safe hiding place for the creature. Here he kenneled it and waited his chance, but it was some time in coming. The old gentleman could not be decoyed outside of his grounds at night. Several times Stapleton lurked about with his hound, but without avail. It was during these fruitless quests that he, or rather his ally, was seen by peasants and that the legend of the demon dog received a new confirmation. He had hoped that his wife might lure Sir Charles to his ruin, but here she proved unexpectedly independent. She would not endeavor to entangle the old gentleman in a sentimental attachment which might deliver him to his enemy. Threats refused to move her, she would have nothing to do with it, and for a time, Stapleton was at a deadlock. He found a way out of his difficulties through the chance that Sir Charles, who had conceived a friendship for him, made him the minister of his charity in the case of this unfortunate woman 
Mrs. Laura Lyons. By representing himself as a single man, he acquired complete influence over her, and he gave her to understand that, in the event of obtaining a divorce from her husband, he would marry her. His plans were suddenly brought to a head by his knowledge that Sir Charles was about to leave the hall on the advice of Dr. Mortimer, with whose opinion he himself pretended to coincide. He must act at once, or his victim might get beyond his power. He therefore put pressure on Mrs. Lyons to write this letter, imploring the old man to give her an interview on the evening before his departure for London. He then, by a specious argument, prevented her from going, and so had the chance for which she had waited. Driving back in the evening from Coombe Tracy, he was in time to get his hound, to treat it with this infernal paint, and to bring the beast round to the gate at which he had reason to expect that he would find the old gentleman waiting. The dog, incited by its master, sprang over the wicket gate and pursued the unfortunate baronet, who fled, screaming down the yew alley. In that gloomy tunnel, it must indeed have been a dreadful sight to see that huge black creature, with its flaming jaws and blazing eyes, bounding after its victim. He fell dead at the end of the alley from heart disease and terror, The hound had kept upon the grassy border while the baronet had run down the path so that no track but the man's was visible. On seeing him lying still, the creature had probably approached to sniff him, but finding him dead had turned away again. It was then that it left the print which was actually observed by Dr. Mortimer, The hound was called off and hurried away to its lair in the Grimpen Mire, and a mystery was left which puzzled the authorities, alarmed the countryside, and finally brought the case within the scope of our observation. So much for the death of Charles Baskerville. You perceive the devilish cunning of it, for really it would be almost impossible to make a case against the real murderer. His only accomplice was one who was never going to give him away, and the grotesque, inconceivable nature of the device only served to make it more effective. Both of the women concerned in the case, Mrs. Stapleton and Mrs. Laura Lyons, were left with a strong suspicion against Stapleton. Mrs. Stapleton knew that he had designs upon the old man and also of the existence of the hound. Mrs. Lyons knew neither of these things, but had been impressed by the death occurring at the time of an uncancelled appointment which was only known to him. However, both of them were under his influence and he had nothing to fear from them. The first half of his task was successfully accomplished. 
but the more difficult still remained. It is possible that Stapleton did not know of the existence of an heir in Canada. In any case, he would very soon learn it from his friend, Dr. Mortimer, and he was told by the latter all details about the arrival of Sir Henry Baskerville. Stapleton's first idea was that this young stranger from Canada might possibly be done to death in London without ever coming down to Devonshire at all. He distrusted his wife ever since she had refused to help him in laying a trap for the old man, and he dared not leave her long out of his sight for fear he should lose his influence over her. It was for this reason that he took her to London with him. They lodged, I find, at the Mexborough Private Hotel in Craven Street, which was actually one of those called upon by my agent in search of evidence. He, disguised in a beard, followed Dr. Mortimer to Baker Street, and afterwards to the station and the Northumberland Hotel. His wife had some inkling of his plans, but she had such a fear of her husband that she dare not ride to warn the man whom she knew to be in danger. If the letter should fall into Stapleton's hands, her own life would not be safe. Eventually, as we know, she adopted the expedient of cutting out the words which would form the message and addressing the letter in a disguised hand. It reached the baronet and gave him the first warning of his danger. It was very essential for Stapleton to get some article of Sir Henry's attire, so that, in the case he was driven to use the dog, he might always have the means of setting him upon his track. With characteristic promptness and audacity, he set about this at once. By chance, however, the first boot which was procured for him was a new one, and therefore useless for his purpose. He then had it returned and obtained another, a most instructive incident, since it proved conclusively to my mind that we were dealing with a real hound, as no other supposition could explain this anxiety to obtain an old boot and this indifference to a new one. The more grotesque an incident is, the more carefully it deserves to be examined, and the very point which appears to complicate a case is, when duly considered and scientifically handled, the one which is most likely to elucidate it. Then we had the visit from our friends the next morning, shadowed always by Stapleton in the cab. From his knowledge of our rooms and from my appearance, as well as from his general conduct, I'm inclined to think that Stapleton's career of crime has been no means limited to this single Baskerville affair. It is suggestive that during the last three years, there have been four considerable burglaries in the West Country, for none of which was any criminal ever arrested. I cannot doubt that Stapleton recruited his waning resources in this fashion, 
and that for years he has been a desperate and dangerous man. We had an example of his readiness of resource that morning when he got away from us so successfully, and of his audacity in sending back my own name to me through the cabman. From that moment, he understood that I had taken over the case in London, and that therefore there was no chance for him there. He returned to Dartmoor and awaited the arrival of the baronet. One moment, said I. You have no doubt described the sequence of events correctly, but there is one point which you have left unexplained. What became of the hound when its master was in London? I have given some attention to this matter, and it is undoubtedly of importance, said Holmes. There can be no question that Stapleton had a confidant, though it is unlikely that he ever placed himself in his power by sharing all his plans with him. There was an old manservant at Merripit House whose name was Anthony. His connections with the Stapletons can be traced for several years, as far back as the schoolmastering days. He must have been aware that his master and mistress were really husband and wife. This man has disappeared and has escaped from the country. I have myself seen this old man cross the Grimpen Mire by the path which Stapleton had marked out. It is very probable, therefore, that in the absence of his master, it was he who cared for the hound, though he may never have known the purpose for which the beast was used. The Stapletons then went down to Devonshire, whither they were soon followed by Sir Henry and you. One word now as to how I stood myself at that time. It may possibly recur to your memory that when I examined the paper upon which the printed words were fastened, I made a close inspection for the watermark. In doing so, I held it within a few inches of my eyes and was conscious of a faint smell of the scent known as white jessamine. There are 75 perfumes, which it is very necessary that a criminal expert should be able to distinguish from each other, and cases have, more than once within my own experience, depended upon their prompt recognition. The scent suggested the presence of a lady, and already my thoughts began to turn towards the Stapletons. Thus, I had made certain of the hound and had guessed at the criminal before we ever went to the West Country. It was my game to watch Stapleton. It was evident, however, that I could not do this if I were with you, since he would be keenly on his guard. I deceived everybody, therefore, yourself included, and I came down secretly when I was supposed to be in London. My hardships were not so great as you imagined, though such trifling details must never interfere with the investigation of a case. I stayed for the most part at Coombe Tracy, 
and used only the hut upon the moor when it was necessary to be near the scene of action. Cartwright had come down with me, and in his disguise as a country boy, he was of great assistance to me. I was dependent upon him for food and clean linen. When I was watching Stapleton, Cartwright was frequently watching you, so that I was able to keep my hand upon all the strings. I have already told you that your reports reached me rapidly, being forwarded instantly from Baker Street to Coombe Tracy. They were of a great service to me, and especially that one incidentally truthful piece of biography of Stapleton's. I was able to establish the identity of the man and the woman and knew at last exactly how I stood. The case had been considerably complicated through the incident of the escaped convict and the relations between him and the Barrymores. This also you cleared up in a very effective way, though I had already come to the same conclusions from my own observations. By the time that you discovered me upon them all, I had complete knowledge of the whole business, but I had not a case which could go to a jury. Even Stapleton's attempt upon Sir Henry that night, which ended in the death of the unfortunate convict, did not help us much in proving murder against our man. There seemed to be no alternative but to catch him red-handed, and to do so, we had to use Sir Henry, alone and apparently unprotected as a bait. We did so, and at the cost of a severe shock to our client, we succeeded in completing our case and driving Stapleton to his destruction. That Sir Henry should have been exposed to this is, I must confess, a reproach to my management of the case. But we had no means of foreseeing the terrible and paralyzing spectacle which the beast presented, nor could we predict the fog which enabled him to burst upon us at such short notice. We succeeded in our object at a cost which both the specialist and Dr. Mortimer assure me will be a temporary one. A long journey may enable our friend to recover not only from his shattered nerves, but also from his wounded feelings. His love for the lady was deep and sincere, and to him the saddest part of all this business was that he should have been deceived by her. It only remains to indicate the part which she had played throughout. There can be no doubt that Stapleton exercised an influence over her, which may have been love, or may have been fear, or very possibly both, since they are by no means incompatible emotions. It was, at least, absolutely effective. At his command, she consented to pass as his sister, though he found the limits of his power over her when he endeavoured to make her the direct accessory to murder. She was ready to warn Sir Henry, so far as she could without implicating her husband, and again and again she tried to do so, 
Stapleton himself seems to have been capable of jealousy. And when he saw the baronet paying court to the lady, even though it was part of his own plan, still he could not help interrupting with a passionate outburst, which revealed the fiery soul which his self-contained manner so cleverly concealed. By encouraging the intimacy, he made certain that Sir Henry would frequently come to Merripit House and that he would sooner or later get the opportunity which he desired. On the day of the crisis, however, his wife turned suddenly against him. She had learned something of the death of the convict, and she knew that the hound was being kept in the outhouse on the evening that Sir Henry was coming to dinner. She taxed her husband with his intended crime, and a furious scene followed in which he showed her, for the first time, that she had a rival in his love. Her fidelity turned in an instant to bitter hatred, and he saw that she would betray him. He tied her up, therefore, that she might have no chance of warning Sir Henry. And he hoped, no doubt, that when the whole countryside put down the baronet's death to the curse of his family, as they certainly would do, he could win his wife back to keep silent upon what she knew. In this, I fancy that, in any case, he made a miscalculation, and that if we had not been there, his doom would nonetheless have been sealed. And now, my dear Watson, without referring to my notes, I cannot give you a more detailed account of this curious case. I do not know anything essential that has been left unexplained. He could not hope to frighten Sir Henry to death as he had done the old uncle with his hound, said I. The beast was wild and put on the scent, said Holmes. If its appearance did not frighten the victim to death, at least it would paralyze the resistance which might be offered. No doubt, I replied. There only remains one difficulty. If Stapleton came into the succession, how could he explain the fact that he, the heir, had been living unannounced under another name, so close to the property? How could he claim it without causing suspicion and inquiry? It is a formidable difficulty, and I fear that you ask too much when you expect me to solve it, said Holmes. The past and the present are within the field of my inquiry, but what a man may do in the future is a hard question to answer. Mrs. Stapleton has heard her husband discuss the problem on several occasions. There were three possible courses. He might claim the property from South America, establish his identity before the British authorities there, and so obtain the fortune without ever coming to England at all. Or he might adopt an elaborate disguise during the short time that he need be in London. Or again, he might furnish an accomplice with the proofs and papers, putting him in as heir and retaining a claim upon some proportion of his income. 
We cannot doubt from what we know of him that he would have found some way out of the difficulty. And now, my dear Watson, we have had some weeks of severe work, and for one evening, I think, we may turn our thoughts to more pleasant channels. I have a box at the opera for tonight's performance. Might I trouble you then to be ready in half an hour, and we can stop at Marcini's for a little dinner on the way. The End <laughs>